This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, the latest polls show Trump in terrible shape at this point. Among registered voters, he trails Biden by 16 points, Bernie by 14, Elizabeth Warren by 12, and even Kamala Harris by 11. That's the Quinnipiac poll. He's losing crucial segments of his 2016 base, and in many of the states he carried last time, he's deep into negative territory in the approval polls. Jeet here of The Nation will comment, and I'll ask him, how does Trump think he can win? Also, movies and politics in the age of Reagan, we'll speak with the great Jay Hoberman about Rocky, Star Wars, and Ghostbusters. Hoberman was film critic for The Village Voice for 30 years. First up, has Trump been going downhill mentally and emotionally this summer? Trump Watch starts right now. Well, for today's Trump Watch update, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, my Trump question for you today, do you think Trump seems to be going downhill mentally and emotionally over the last month or two? He he got pissed off because he couldn't buy Greenland. He wanted to nuke hurricanes that were threatening America. And he said that G7 should meet at his Doral Golf Club in Florida because, among other things, it has plenty of parking. Apparently his point was that at the Doral, world leaders would not have to circle the lot looking for a space. To me, these are not the signs of a healthy mind. What do you think? Well, uh, it kind of begs the question of whether Trump ever had a healthy mind, but this is a relative question, not an absolute one. Yes. Uh, I I think that as, I mean, for instance, uh, Trump always would have tried to get the G7 to meet at at a Trump property. I mean, you know, uh, that that that's Trump the the quintessence of Trumpism. But more broadly, I think uh, the the specter haunting Trump, as you alluded to in the intro, is electoral defeat. Yeah, and as uh, that looms uh, as, as a larger and larger possibility in the polls, and as he's afraid the economy is going to go south, which is his real, uh, you know, arguably from his point of view, his only calling card to the broader electorate that isn't, uh, you know, a bunch of crazed nativists, but uh, the the voters, uh, even he understands he needs to win, who go beyond the hardcore of of Trump supporters. Uh, I think that has unhinged him, uh, because the one thing, you know, Trump, I think, fears more than anything else is losing. And as, as that looms as a larger possibility, I think, yes, he gets uh, even more unhinged than he is when he's feeling relatively okay. Well, the second topic I want to take up with you is uh, the recent news about the Green New Deal and One LA Union. Los Angeles has had a contract for cheap solar power ready to be signed for more than a month, but on Tuesday, city officials declined to approve it. Because of opposition from the DWP, the Department of Water Power's labor union, which is still angry, apparently, about the decision of Mayor Eric Garcetti to shut down three gas-fired power plants, which would have a, 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 a... a remodeling, an updating that would have cost billions of dollars and made a contribution to more global warming. We celebrated that here on this show with Bill McKibben. The facts here are pretty straightforward. The LADWP would pay less than two cents per kilowatt hour for solar generated electricity for 25 years. This would be the lowest price ever paid for solar power in the United States. But this union, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, work, <clears throat> the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 18 represents the utility employees of the DWP, is trying to stop the deal. Uh, tell us what is going on here. Well, first of all, uh, the, the the main oddity of this 
is that this solar facility uh, uh, that uh, uh, the city uh, has been planning to get power from, uh, it already has agreed that it will uh, hire as its employees and recognize a union of another IBEW local, not local 18, since this is... Uh, the plant will be out in the desert far uh, outside of Los Angeles, but another IBEW local, which, which is to say this really is uh, a statement coming from the local, not the, the larger union. Uh, now, on the one hand, uh, you know, unions that are in, you know, employ uh, members in the fossil fuel economy, it's understandable why they are nervous, but I think in this case, uh, you know, uh, the the city is is making provisions for for keeping those people on for upgrading their work. I think it's it's really in this case a function of the local union leadership. Uh, Brian Darcy heads the local. He is is accustomed to being uh, a suitably important poobah, and he uh, clearly does not get along with Eric Garcetti. Uh, they invested a lot of money uh, in, in conjunction with allies in the fossil fuel industry in the recent city council race up in the northwest quadrant of the city against a, uh, a candidate who was backed by pretty much the rest of the Democratic establishment, the L.A. Times and DSA. So, you know, I don't know. That's a pretty broad <laughs> yes. uh, center-left, progressive, whatever you want to call it, coalition that uh, unions normally are a part of, but largely because they, they saw uh, that the, this Democratic candidate is backing uh, the Green New Deal, and because of their feud with, uh, with Mayor Garcetti, they poured in a ton of money to defeat her, although one vote on the L.A. City Council really isn't going to be worth that much to, these, uh, to, to this union, but it's I think it was a symbolic value that prompted their uh, involvement, at least in, to that extent. Yeah, I read that it was they. Th- this one union local spent three hundred thousand dollars in a city council race, and the campaign included dishonest mailers that uh, portrayed the person they were against, who was a scientist and environmental activist named Lorraine Lundquist. They called her a socialist with an extremist agenda. And uh, that that carried the day. The, that candidate lost the republic. It's a Republican, right? It's a Republican supported by the union. Won. Well, that that's pretty lousy. It's pretty lousy. Now, th- this is a district that historically has been the only one of the fifteen council districts where Republicans win. I mean, it, it, it's at a certain level not that surprising, given the composition of the district. What is surprising is the conduct of the union local. Uh, and, uh, you know, what this may augur is a growing split within some of labor between uh, unions that are part of the fossil fuel industry and uh, other unions that aren't. I mean, you have un- much larger unions like the service employees, SEIU, which has actually endorsed the Green New Deal, as has the AFL-CIO generally in the state of Maine, uh, and the uh, L.A. County Federation of Labor. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, but it, it suggests a kind of split which is, in the broader sense, if you take it beyond labor, which could be generational, it could be uh, a split within the union movement. Uh, in some ways, there are even some echoes here, I think, of the 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 labor left split that uh, happened as a result of the Vietnam War, yeah. uh, so uh, I, I I think that's a possibility here. Then there are you know th- then there are unions that are a good deal more nuanced, even if they are in the fossil fuel industry. The oil, chemical, and atomic workers was a union where obviously these are refinery workers, uh, obviously in the fossil fuel industry. It uh, merged into the steelworkers about, I think, 15 or so years ago. Uh, and a number of those locals have a much more nuanced position than, than those of IBEW Local 18. Uh, that, that is to say, they understand the threat of global warming, uh, but, you know, they, they need, you know, not vaporous uh, promises of security and transition and all of this, but uh, they, they've won some pretty damn good union contracts. These, these, some of these guys are the highest-paid blue-collar workers, along with the West Coast longshoremen. 
you know, in California, and uh, I think reasonably they want some assurance that uh, they come out uh, okay in a transition uh, rather than having to take a 70% pay cut, which is, uh, you know, so I, I think when when Democrats and progressives formulate Green New Deal policies, uh, they, they need to uh, allot a lot of funding uh, to displace workers. And if you look at the plans that an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders uh, has come up with on the Green New Deal, uh, you'll see that's exactly what they do. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Elizabeth Warren had the largest rally of her campaign to date in St. Paul uh, a week ago, 12,000 people at McAllister College. She came out, and this is part of the issue of unions and the Green New Deal. Elizabeth Warren in St. Paul came out against the crude oil pipeline that's called Enbridge Line 3, and against the copper mine proposed for the Boundary Waters Wilderness, that mine is called Twin Metals. These are two key issues for environmentalists and supporters of a Green New Deal. And Minnesota construction unions, as you might have predicted, are not happy. Enbridge Line 3, we've discussed it here with Bill McKibben, would bring crude oil from the notorious Alberta tar sands across northern Minnesota to the ports of Superior and Duluth. Twin Metals is a Chilean mining company whose CEO just happens to rent a house in Washington to Ivanka and Jared. And the proposed copper mine in northern Minnesota would create toxic runoff that would pollute the Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe Country at the Canadian border. Bernie had already come out against the Line 3 uh, pipeline, Elizabeth Warren is the first to come out against the Twin Metals Copper Mine. Trump, of course, supports both. Uh, the opposition is led by the Iron Range Building and Constructions Trades Council, uh, which says that Elizabeth Warren is abandoning rural workers to align with Twin Cities area uh, Democrats, and the unions have signed an agreement yesterday with Twin Metals to build the mine. Uh, we should note, I, I'm sure you remember, northern Minnesota had one of the few congressional districts that flipped from Democrat to Republican in 2018. Uh, what do you, uh, how does this fit into the larger national picture? Yeah, it's an, it's an old uh, Finnish immigrant uh, mining uh, community up there, out of which, uh, among others, Gus Hall, <laughs> the former leader Ain't it the, the truth? Communist Party yes. uh, of the United States. Uh, but I think, you know, that there are two categories of unions uh, which are uh, aligned against uh, uh, environmentalists and people concerned about the climate crisis. Uh, one is the building trades, and one are the fossil fuel workers directly, like refinery workers, miners, etc. Uh, there are a lot more people in the building trades unions, obviously, than there are in uh, the fossil fuel industries. The building trades, I, I think um, this is partly a question of how you present the Green New Deal, because if you look at what uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders has proposed, there is more work uh, uh, for construction workers, uh, unionized construction workers is, is the stipulation in both Bernie and Elizabeth's plans, uh, to, to, to construct what's required for the Green New Deal, then they'll get in any number of, uh, of oil pipelines. And as Joe Uline, who heads the Labor Network for Sustainability, has pointed out, there are so many cities that need to uh, install a whole new water pipe system, a la Flint and Newark, that you know a commitment to that alone would uh, be tremendous for the building trades, for the laborers and other unions uh, going forward. So, you know, I mean, but nonetheless, there are parts of the building trades, including the National Building Trades Council he, uh, headed in Washington here, uh, that have really aligned themselves with the fossil fuel industry, oddly enough, even more than the unions uh, that are uh, directly uh, employing people in the fossil fuel industry. So that is a peculiarity 
in some ways related to the cultural politics of white working class building trades uh, workers. Uh, that's a peculiarity of, of the building trades. Now, to make it even more complicated, a, lot, a number of the building trades unions are heavily uh, Latino. Certainly, if you look at the laborers' union in, in L.A. or many cities, it's a predominantly Latino local who are not crazy exactly about Trump's racism. So, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, the, the, this is an area where work needs to be done, uh, to put it mildly. Political work needs to be done. Uh, you said the Iron Range of northern Minnesota, the town of Ely in particular, these are old Finnish uh, communist communities, the, pla the place that Gus Hall, uh, one time head of the Communist Party of the United States, are from. Mo I think most, uh, most people think of uh, the Iron Range in Ely not as the home of Gus Hall, but as the home of Bob Dylan. W was he a Finnish uh, communist? No. <laughs> <laughs> He, he he was Jewish of of indeterminable ideological uh, composition. Folk music, uh, fin uh, Jewish and folk music was uh, was his childhood. Uh, yes, yes. Childhood origins, and uh, just in a minute or two we have left here. I would point out that the fight in northern Minnesota is between is described as between the environmentalists and the unions. Uh, and, of course, the environmentalists do have the, you know, canoe crowd, but it's also tourism is a huge industry in places like northern Minnesota, so there's also economic interest at stake there. I'm sure lots of people want to visit uh, Gus Hall's birthplace. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, that... that uh, <laughs> that's the sum and substance that, of my knowledge of tourism in North Dakota. You've so. never been you've never been canoeing in the Boundary Waters canoe area, apparently. Apparently not. Well, apparently I'm not. Uh, there's it awaits you. The town of Ely uh, awaits you and will welcome you. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, it's always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, movies and politics in the age of Reagan. But first, how is Trump doing? The primary election season is in full swing and the new polls are pouring in. For comment, we turn to Jeet here. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. We reached him today in Toronto. Hi, Jeet. Oh, hi, John. Well, the new Fox poll shows Trump in terrible shape right now. It shows that Biden would beat him 50 to 38. Bernie would beat him 48 to 39. Elizabeth Warren would beat him 46 to 39. And this is the Fox poll. Is the Fox poll a good poll? Yeah, Paul, uh, Fox. Uh, we might not like the uh, the cable news station or its spin, but uh, they um, they hire out their polls and they use very good pollsters and they have one of the best reputations. Uh, and also, I think more interestingly, it shows that he's uh, polling lower than his approval ratings. That could be bad news for him because um, in 2016 he uh, um, got more votes than his approval ratings, partially because he's running against a very unpopular uh, rival as well. And so people chose him as the lesser of two evils. Um, that might not be the case this time. You know, he's never been a popular politician, and it seems pretty clear that he has no intention of becoming popular. He's not doing any of the things that would win over people who who don't like him. Trump's whole govern, governing style has been to try to keep the Republican base on side and keep them uh, to him. And I think he's done that for a very good reason, which is that he's had all sorts of corruptions and scandals. And if the Republican Party ever abandons him, he could be in like serious trouble, not like electoral trouble, like impeachment trouble uh, and possibly criminal justice trouble. So it's been to his own personal advantage to try to keep 
Republicans on board with him as much, and he's giving them tax cuts and a lot of Republican judges. But this is not the type of stuff that's going to win over anyone who didn't like Trump before. I wanted to add one other point about Trump not winning people over, which is I think that it's also a matter of his own beliefs, that he is genuinely committed to a sort of nativist, racist agenda. And whenever these issues come up, he he often uh, puts them to the foreground, not just to appeal to his base, but because that's what he wants. And that's not winning him any votes either. So why does Trump think that he he can get reelected with the vote of his base and nobody else? His base is nowhere near a majority, even if he gets his approval rating. That's 42 or 43 percent, and that is not going to get him elected. Yeah, I suspect that Trump will think that he can try to replicate what happened in 2016, which is that he's unpopular, but he can try to make the Democratic rival as unpopular, uh, and that would depress some of the Democratic vote, and it would also rile up uh, his own voters and and get people who are wavering on his side. Um, Among people who disliked both Trump and Clinton in 2016, Trump won them. So I think it's it's a matter of that. And also, thank you, founding fathers, but you don't need a majority of the vote or the most votes to become president. Because the Electoral College could still favor him in theory. So I think that's I think that's um, the strategy he's running on, like uh, a replay of 2016. You pointed out that in 2016, he was running against a very unpopular Democrat, historically unpopular, uh, almost as unpopular as he was. Doesn't seem like that's what's happening in 2020. All the leading Democratic candidates are a lot more popular than uh, he was at this point uh, three, four years ago. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, they're more popular than he was, and more importantly, they're more popular than Hillary Clinton. And there's problems with his base. The new NBC Wall Street Journal poll has a huge danger sign for Trump. Among white women without college degrees, Trump trails the generic Democrat by six percentage points, In 2016, exit polls showed him beating Hillary among these same voters, white women without college degrees, by 27 percentage points. Yeah, I think it is a huge problem that the, uh, it's not just he hasn't expanded his base, but there are key parts of his base that are leaving. I think also some of the suburban Republicans who, after the Comey letter came, decided to go with Trump, um, it seems like he's clearly lost them. Uh, just based on 2018. And white women without a college education, it seems like they don't like a lot of the gender stuff, the, you know, the Stormy Daniels stuff. And they also, interestingly enough, some of the polling shows, they don't like the uh, racial incitement. You reminded us that you don't need a popular majority to become president of the United States because of the Electoral College. And so what we really should look at is the state-by-state polls. And here we have approval polls that are fascinating and very bad for Trump. The early to mid-August state-by-state job approval ratings show that in 10 of the states he carried in 2016, his net approval ratio, that is the ratio of approval to disapproval, is negative. More people disapprove of him than approve of him. And this is among registered voters in Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin, all states he carried in 2016. He now has more people who disapprove of him than approve of him. This would make for a landslide for the Democratic candidate. How seriously should we take these polls? Um, I I think we should take them uh, with some degree of seriousness, although I think I mean, the uh, sort of proviso is that, like, if you go back to 2011, Obama was underwater in some states that he would, you know, go on to recarry in 2012. So, like, nothing is written in stone. But, but it is the case that, yeah, he there's um, a lot of states that he carried uh, that he's uh, uh, becoming unpopular in. And, and we know that this has a real impact just from 2018. I mean, those are precisely the areas where the Democrats regained the House. And so I think that it is a problem. I mean, Texas is a long shot, but it is really fascinating how close uh, Beto O'Rourke came to winning in 2018, how well Democrats did in sort of down-ballot races, and how Republicans in Texas are very scared 
and and quite a few of them are not running again uh, for Congress. So from that, even more than the polling, we can kind of tell which way the wind is blowing. And it's not like the polls show him close in the states he carried in 2016. He's 12 points behind in the approval polls in Pennsylvania, 11 in Michigan, 9 in Arizona, North Carolina, and Wisconsin. That's a lot. And as for the chance that Trump would be doing better in states that narrowly went for Clinton in 2016, that isn't happening either. His approval ratings are minus 18 in Colorado, minus 15 in Minnesota, minus 12 in Nevada, and an astounding minus 27 in New Hampshire. And these are polls of registered voters, not just adults. Yeah, I, I saw. It's hard to imagine him gain, gaining new states based on that. And it's easy to imagine him losing states that he had won. And uh, I mean, one should never forget the narrowness of his uh, electoral college victory, which really came down to under 80,000 votes in three states. So how could he win? What's his best chance? Well, I think that the best chance, would, which maybe he should have been pushing all along, is to just keep quiet and just like, <laughs> like run on, you know, like a fairly decent economy. Don't tweet. Don't pick fights. Claim credit for whatever good happens, but don't um, be in people's faces so much. And then maybe, you know, like voters might decide, like, um, why change horses in midstream? Like, why, why, why rock the boat? Uh, and I think that strategy might have worked, especially if the economy keeps up. But I think that's the other headwind he's going to run into, where, you know, there's, there are some signs of an economic recession coming. Uh, and certainly there's definite signs that the White House is panicking about this. Kellyanne Conway was uh, on TV saying, you know, the fundamentals of the economy are sound. And whenever I hear that, I remember, you know, that's exactly what uh, Herbert Hoover said in October 1929. This is why I'm laughing. Excellent point. Yeah. Uh, excellent point. Yeah. Well, the other things that Trump could rely on are building fear of his opponent, especially if it's Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. These people are, you know, radical un-American socialists. Uh, do you think? I mean, there's certainly some potential there, don't you think? I think that there is some potential, although I feel like the the one worry there would be among older Democrats, you know, who are kind of grew up in the Cold War and for whom socialism is a dirty word. I think this is especially a concern with Bernie. But it happens, like there's a lot of polling about Bernie himself. And the thing is, people, they have a sense of a candidate as well as a sense of where they stand. And um, I think more people, and, and people react to personality as much as ideology. I don't think a lot of Americans can define what socialism is, but they have a sense of it, like they know Bernie, they know he's a candidate, you know, who kind of stands for ordinary people. And that, you know, like, and so he, he tends to poll well. Uh, he's second really only to Biden in going head-to-head against Trump. Especially among the younger generation, like I feel like the sort of socialist accusation has really no salience. So yeah, I, I, it doesn't worry me so much. The one worry I have, if it's Warren or Sanders, is not that they'll be seen as too extreme, but that some centrist billionaire like Bloomberg or Schultz will like run a third-party campaign. And of course, there's one other thing that would help Trump win, and that is some huge disaster, another 9-11 war with Iran. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if there's a terrorist attack, I guess all bets are off. We wouldn't necessarily know. Although I feel like the sort of patriotic rallying behind the president that we saw after 9-11, I'm not sure it would come to Trump. Like He's polarized the country in a way that he can't make that, take that mantle um, so easily. And if there's a war, again, I mean, there's a lot of like polling saying that, you know, people are very distrustful, uh, are very tired of the forever wars. At this point where, like, you know, the youngest soldiers in the American army were born after 9-11. Uh, so we, they're, they're, you, they, you have soldiers that are younger than the war that they're going to be sent to fight in. And I just don't think that there's a popular appetite for uh, military adventures. Well, the heart of Trump's campaign is hatred and fear of immigrants. And there's an evil mind behind Trump's anti-immigrant agenda, the mind of Stephen Miller. Both the New York Times and the Washington Post recently ran long page one pieces on Stephen Miller. You wrote about them. You said these pieces were smart and well-researched, but you called them disheartening. Why? Well, 
I think Miller gets us, you know, pretty close to where the Republican Party is. Like, I think if you look at sort of Trump himself and other figures that sort of have swarmed around Trump, it's easy to have this idea that this is all an anomaly. That like basically the sort of pirate entertainer hijacked a political party and lucked his way into the presidency. Trump is a very odd figure, as as is someone like Stephen Bannon, who likes to quote sort of obscure fascist thinkers, <laughs> or someone like Sebastian Gorka. Uh, but Miller, if you look at Miller's biography, he's really like a sort of very garden variety Republican. Like he, you can see people like him on any, any college campus as the sort of, you know, college Republicans. And he's followed a trajectory that's very common to the Republican Party. So he's really represents the norm. And I think that that maybe explains why he's been the most successful of Trump's um, staffers in the sense that he's like, you know, he hasn't been kicked out the way Batman and Gorka were. He's, um, he avoids the uh, limelight. He praises Trump all the time. But more importantly, he's, uh, Trump um, has a sense that, like, you know, Miller's anti-immigration agenda is what the GOP wants. And Miller has built a kind of substantial network that has really made sort of nativism the dominant force in the GOP. Well, anti-immigrant politics are something fairly new to the Republicans. Reagan said that it was, quote, millions of immigrants from every corner of the earth, close quote, who showed that God had made America a city on a hill. As recently as 2012, when Romney lost to Obama, the official Republican Party autopsy concluded that the party had to devote itself to recruiting Latino voters by supporting comprehensive immigration reform. What made them think they could recruit Latino voters after 2012? Well, there's a longstanding thought that, uh, you know, Latino voters are like, you know, uh, Catholic, more conservative, many of them involved in small businesses. So, But I mean, the GOP pro-immigration position really came from the donors. And it came from the business elite that, you know, really values cheap labor. If you look behind figures like Reagan and uh, the Bushes, there's always been an undercurrent, a rising undercurrent of nativism that really, you know, took off in the 1980s and um, emerged uh, as a force with figures like Pat Buchanan and the sort of paleoconservatives, and especially intensified after 9-11, where, like, I would argue, you know, the global war on terror really um, gave a legitimacy to sort of xenophobic fears. So, and you saw a lot of sort of popular Islamophobia and uh, organizations that are promoting a more nativist policies. And Miller really glommed onto that. I mean, he was, you know, came from Santa Monica. And I think the California GOP is particularly nativist yeah. uh, because they, they blame their electoral failure on, you know, uh, whites becoming a minority. Miller really came out of a California Republican Party and, and did a network for uh, Republican students such as himself, once they hit college, they're like newspapers and uh, programs for them to get internships at Congress. And he like, you know, picked up on the r- wave of the um, rising xenophobia and uh, went to work uh, first with, for Michelle Bachman and later with Jeff Sessions. And Sessions was a real powerhouse behind the sort of nativist wing of the GOP. And I, I, I think Miller's career shows that, that that nativist wing has now become dominant, that, that the older business wing of uh, Reagan, Bush, and Romney really is not, um, doesn't hasn't carried the day. So Michelle Bachman, his first employer, is gone. Uh, Jeff Sessions is gone. Kirsten Nielsen, who was in charge of anti-immigrant policy for a while, is gone. How come Stephen Miller is still there? I think Miller um, has convinced Trump and uh, also Trump's family. Like it seems like uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka are both. Uh, his patrons, he convinced them that he's their pipeline to the nativist wing of the GOP, and that as long as he stays, he can um, they'll have credibility with with that wing. And also, I think like Trump himself agrees with him. Like like you know like whenever there's an attempt to reach an immigration compromise, Miller is there you know whispering in uh, Trump's ear that well this means we'll get more people coming in from those. Well, we all know what Trump thinks of those countries, right? Uh, poor uh, countries filled with non-white people. And so Trump, like, you know, uh, freaks out and agrees with Miller. So I, I think there's a real mind meld between Miller and Trump, and but that mind meld is more reflective of where the GOP is. Uh, but also, like, you know, like, Trump will be gone one day, and even if Miller is gone, I think that there's 
a, a whole infrastructure and industry mass producing people like Miller. <laughs> and, you know, there'll be like, you know, 10 or 15 more Millers to replace him. Like, like the real issue is that the Republican Party has decided that immigration from non-white countries is an existential threat to them, that they can never win over these voters. Uh, they'll be um, defeated out. And so therefore, it's in their own best interest to try to, like, stop immigration. The only solution I can see is if Republicans lose enough elections consecutively, like if they say they lost the presidency three times in a row, right, then they might think, like, well, we have to change our message. We have to, like, figure out how to uh, adjust to browning America. But, I mean, aside from that, it's going to be Stephen Miller is going to be our future for the foreseeable future. He's going to be the mainstay of the GOP. Jeet here. He wrote about Stephen Miller for thenation.com. Thank you, Jeet. Thank you. It is great to be here as always. Trump will be gone one day. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, movies and politics in the age of Reagan. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first... The synergy between politics and popular culture has never been clearer or stronger than in the age of Reagan. And now there's a wonderful new book on movie culture in the age of Reagan. It's called Make My Day. And the author is Jay Hoberman. For 30 years, he was a film critic for The Village Voice. It's also written for Art Forum, The New York Review, The New York Times, and The Nation. He's written a dozen books, including the brilliant Army of Phantoms, American Movies in the Making of the Cold War. Jay Hoberman, welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. When you write about movie culture in the age of Reagan, you focus not on what you think are the best movies of the 80s or the movies you most admire. In fact, you pay a lot of attention to the movies you dislike. Why is that? Well, the fact that I dislike these movies uh, doesn't mean that they're not interesting for me to write about. And I chose movies that I felt were symptomatic of what was going on both in politics and the, um, the, the culture at large. And Reagan, of course, was often dismissed by liberals as just an actor from old Hollywood, but you think the fact that he was part of old Hollywood gave him a special uh, power and success as president? Uh, definitely. Uh, there, are, there are two things here. I mean, first of all, uh, when he ran for governor of California, uh, the liberals and the Democrats just did not take him seriously. He seemed like a lightweight. And how was he going to beat Pat Brown, a two-term governor of California and a real political powerhouse? What they didn't realize was that an actor knows how to present. An actor knows how to deliver a line. Uh, an, an actor can, uh, can hit their marks. It's very difficult for a politician to, to compete with somebody who's that polished and professional at, at projecting an image. The other thing, and maybe the, uh, uh, the, the more significant one, is that Reagan bought into the whole Hollywood package, particularly in the 1940s. And what I mean by that is that, taken as a whole, American movies had a particular kind of ideology. They were very optimistic, forward-thinking, imagined that they were inclusive. I mean, in fact, they were not, but they had that self-appointed sense of, uh, of universal appeal. Certainly they wanted to appeal universally. And... Um, mandated happy endings. I mean, there was a production code into the 1960s that kept things from getting too real. I think that Reagan internalized all of this, and this is why I consider him Hollywood's greatest creation. I mean, he sincerely believed this stuff, and um, the one real takeaway I had from doing research at the Reagan Library 
if I'm not mistaken, you've done work there too, have yes. you not? But what I did take away from this was the degree to which Hollywood was still so central in his thinking. I mean, you know, his wife had been in the movies also. Nancy was a minor star. And <clears throat> I really think that this was the high point of their lives. I mean, being president was very nice, and he certainly <laughs> enjoyed it. But I think that it's it's really not as not as great as being a movie star, even when he wasn't, you know, in the first rung. <laughs> I mean, just to be part of that. And I I say this because they stayed in touch with people. They spent a lot of time reaching out, you know, making videos. I mean, they spent a month making a, a birthday video for Lou Wasserman, who had been their agent and who was at that time the leading Democratic fundraiser in California, did not make any difference to them. He was, you know, they were together in showbiz. He was their, he was their guru. You know, he was their rabbi. And um, so he was, he was not a great movie star, but he, he, I think he embodied Hollywood more completely than any, than any other star. Well, let's talk about some of the movies. After Reagan was reelected in 1984 in a landslide, you wrote a big piece for the Village Voice where you said that during that campaign year, only one film, quote, mirrored Reaganism in full flower, and that film was Ghostbusters. You called it aesthetically weak but ideologically potent. Tell us about yeah. Ghostbusters. Okay, the, now the reason I said that was that Ghostbusters, I think objectively, and you know, I was a working movie critic in, in 1984, so I saw a lot of movies. I, I didn't think, I didn't find Ghostbusters really that funny. I mean, I, I, I saw certain things in it that, that were appealing, but you know, the, 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 the setup was, was kind of fun, but the movie was not that, that funny. But some, it, it inspired like almost, you know, like a fanatical devotion. It, it overperformed. People saw something in there that they really wanted. And I think that uh, the same thing was true with Reagan. And uh, it's not like Ghostbusters is, is, is an allegory of Reaganism or that Reagan was taking cues from Ghostbusters. It's that they're, they're both symptomatic of the same thing, this uh, uh, longing for uh, 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 the world to be in a certain way. And, you know, you and I remember this, but lots of people don't. 1984 was a year that had, like, a really uncanny significance for Americans and for people in the West in general, being the, the, the year of George Orwell's dystopian novel. Yeah. And um, I feel that, in, in a funny sort of way, both Reagan and the movie liquidated that anxiety. And this is, despite the fact that Reagan... Was uh, was a terrible uh, uh, saber rattler, if not warmonger, you know. Throughout 1983, I mean, he he conjured up a crisis, um, which he then dissipated, which is exactly what the Ghostbusters are accused of doing uh, in the in the movie. You know, like inventing ghosts so that they can exercise them. But I think you know the, there are, there are two key aspects uh, where the um, uh, the movie and the campaign coincide. Well, three, actually, because uh, Ghostbusters makes such a big deal about making the uh, guy from the Environmental Protection Agency like this really humorless, uptight, annoying kind of hippie type. You know, I mean, uh, so they're against regulation. Reagan, you know, hated regulation. You know, they consider that they've come up with this fantastic entrepreneurial plan. Uh, at one point, Bill Murray says, I've worked in the private sector. They demand results. So the, the Wall Street Journal picked up on this, incidentally, when they, they saw the movies being like right there, you know, like a business school. Perfect. And the other thing is that they've invented what they call the indispensable defense science for the, uh, I don't know, for the 20th century mm -hmm. or, or something like that. In 1983, Reagan announced his anti-missile defense system. He called it Star Wars. Wasn't that also a movie? That was a movie, and of course, you know, I think it was at that time still the, the top-grossing movie ever. And he didn't call it Star Wars. That was the press, and that the Democrats called it Star Wars. And they thought that that was, you know, a sign that they were dissing it. It was a kind of uh, derisive term. But Reagan understood that that was like a great term, that they handed him 
you know, a wonderful trademark. I mean, George Lucas wasn't happy about it, and, and Reagan had this riff on They said, well, you know, they call it Star Wars, but, you know, we'll do it, and, you know, the Force will be with us, or something like that. So he, he pretended to object to the title, but then he, you know, like, used another phrase from the, from the movie. You call Star Wars, quote, a seamless blend of Walt Disney and Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, Star Wars is, is, is an amazing entertainment package. Uh, it has this, you know, grade school narrative, and I mean that literally. I mean, it, it is a kid's movie. The fact that it, that it appealed, you know, universally can tell us something about the, what, the, what the audience wanted. In those days. So it has this, this uh, uh, kind of grade school account of a uh, rebellion against a, um, a tyranny, and it's how can you can't quite figure it out, you know, like the princess is also part of the republic, and, you know, it's basically like young people against old, young people and robots against old mean people. But the, uh, the slickness of it, the, uh, the, the way that uh, Lucas fetishizes hardware and, uh, you know, these spectacular scenes, there are scenes that, that quote directly from uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. And it's not innocent. I mean, he went to film school, uh, so he certainly was familiar with these movies. And it's not that I, I'm saying that Star Wars is a fascist movie, although it has been said it's a movie that a fascist audience might, in, might enjoy, but that he didn't care. It was something that worked. In a third film we need to talk about, one of Reagan's most famous lines was, go ahead, make my day. This was in 1985 when he was telling Congress that he would veto any tax increase. It's make my day is the title of your book. And of course, it comes from a Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry movie, the 1983 film Sudden Impact. Let's talk about Clint Eastwood's persona on screen. Okay, I mean, Eastwood was, during uh, um, much of the 70s and into the 80s, the number one uh, male star, which is to say the number one star, to me that's very interesting because whoever's the number one star with John Wayne for a long time is kind of uh, uh, American male ego ideal. And uh, Eastwood was that, although the thing with Eastwood was that he was a, a more ambiguous character. Than, uh, than than John Wayne. He was hipper, in a way. I mean, uh, I remember when he he first started making movies. People thought that oh, maybe he's like, you know, uh, closer to James Dean than to uh, than than to John Wayne. Uh, there's a certain moral ambiguity. And when he played Dirty Harry, he was a figure that I call like the legal vigilante. I mean, he could break the law because he was right. Uh, some people saw that as a, as a sort of fascist. Uh, figure. Uh, in any case, he had some very good lines which he could deliver, and Make My Day was one of them. I forget who did the screenplay for uh, Sudden Impact, but it was, a, it was a terrific line, and I think he delivered it to somebody. It was one of these things, are they going to draw their gun? You know, yeah, go ahead and draw, and I'll shoot you, and it'll make my day, that yeah. kind of thing. But Reagan just understood it. it. It stayed with him. I don't think anybody wrote that for him. I think that it just just popped out the way a lot of movie lines would would pop out uh, of his mouth in, in certain situations. And uh, the fact that he's casting himself as Dirty Harry is, uh, is is very powerful. I mean, Dirty Harry was like the toughest cop in America, you know, which means the toughest cop in the world. You end your book, Make My Day, with a terrific epilogue comparing and contrasting Reagan and Trump, both came out of an entertainment background. Both were polished salesmen who became president, but the differences are pretty interesting. Reagan, you, you have said, was old Hollywood in, incarnate, you know, the happy ending. Trump clearly is not about happy endings, and his background in entertainment uh, is very different. Uh, yes. Obviously, he's a, he's a creature of, uh, of, of television, of um, reality TV, but also of... Uh, of Fox. I mean, he was a he was a, a, a political pundit on Fox for uh, for a few years, and also was involved in wrestling too. And has been involved in a lot of these tawdry showbiz things. So Trump 
is is about understands that um, the kind of entertainment that he's good at and is by nature divisive. You know, you 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 want to you want to create villains and polarize the audience. You know, to 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 rev them up. The, you know, Reagan had his demagogic instincts certainly, particularly when he ran for governor of California. But he was more inclined to to bring people together as uh, as was said the way that movies do you know make a scenario that appeals to the greatest number of people uh trump has no interest in that i mean he's got his audience well in your book you say trump is a synthesis of two great movie demagogues of 1976 Howard Beale of Network, and especially Sylvester Stallone's Rocky. Uh, let's focus on Rocky here for a minute, because it seems to me there's a lot of Rocky in the Trump persona. Yes. Well, first of all, all politicians love Rocky. I mean, the, the Rocky theme is a sort of the unofficial anthem of anybody running for president, any man. You know, women don't tend to use it in the same way. The thing with Rocky is that Rocky put a kind of smile face uh, on a form of nativism and specifically on racism i mean this was a, this was the uh, really the motor of that movie the movie was all about the original rocky although you know it comes up again in the other ones about putting uh, muhammad ali uh, probably the, the perceived as like the biggest threat in american uh, popular culture since elvis and maybe a bigger threat putting him in his place and that's what that movie's about, you know. Some lovable, you know, uh, a white palooka, you know, a, a club fighter comes out of the past and uh, fights this horrendous, powerful black man to a standstill, and it's that. And that's the happy ending. So, sure, I mean, uh, uh, that's the kind of thing that would appeal to to Trump in his sunnier moves. But I think that Howard Beale, who could just get on television and rant and rave. Uh, and uh, um, get people to like go to their windows and 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 respond to him is a is is is, is a model for him uh, too. So, in conclusion, you say Reagan's movie was America, the idealized, happy America of his imagination. What is Trump's movie about? I, I think Trump's movie is about Trump, and I think that. He has succeeded in making himself such a compelling figure that he he dominates this this landscape. I don't know that that people felt that way about Reagan. I think that that Reagan was he could be like an everyman writ large in a way if that's what he wanted to play. You know, Trump, you know, is like is like the villain from a uh, you know a, a superhero movie. He's a menace. And um, I think people are, are transfixed by that. I mean, some people, I mean, it's, it would be, you know, he certainly does not appeal to everybody. In fact, arguably, he's the least appealing president ever. But the, uh, but the people who like him really do like him. And uh, it's him that they like. Jay Hoberman, his new book is Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. It's totally great. Jim, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, Harold Meyerson and Jeet here. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, and to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Stay tuned for Rising Up with Sonali next on KPFK. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>